Uh, in your program this morning also is the 90-day giving challenge. We introduced this last week. Some of you have been thinking about this, praying about this. Uh, I want you to know we're praying with you about that. Um, and uh, just trust that uh, you will take that seriously and consider what God would have you do. And then I want to let you know that, um, you know, we've, we've talked about Vision Next a little bit and the whole idea of buying land or, or a building to renovate. And uh, yesterday morning before the move, uh, the elders gathered and we made a decision to move forward on a piece of property that we uh, have located that we think would be great for us. And uh, so we just ask that you would pray <laughs> for that process. We're, we're going to make an offer. We'll move into a feasibility study and just see if it will work for us to put uh, our church on that piece of property. So uh, pray with us about that. It's getting real, folks, and uh, getting exciting. So uh, you can learn more about Vision Next, which is that capital campaign, at uh, mylpclacy.com. Uh, if you'd like some personal information, I'd be happy to meet with you and explain to you about Vision Next. Just mark your Connect card. Hey, this morning we are resuming our study through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, known as Romans coincidentally. And um, in prior to the Christmas season, we, we did seven messages just on Romans chapter one alone. And so if you weren't here for any of that, you can go to mylpclacy.com and you can listen to any or all of those messages and would encourage you to do that. Uh, the great advantage of listening online is you don't have to look at me during the message. So it's a great opportunity. So the letter to the Romans was written by Paul, who was a first century Jew and a Jew of pedigree. He was a, had been a, a member of the sect of the Pharisees. He was also a Roman citizen. Paul happened to have been not just a local yokel, but Paul was one of the most educated scholars of his day. He studied under uh, a, a rabbi named Gamaliel, uh, who was uh, considered the foremost scholar uh, of the time. Uh, Paul had become a persecutor of the church, uh, this new sect that was referred to as the way, and uh, he, he made it his job to drag off men and women, throwing them into prison, uh, some of them were executed for their faith. And then one day, while he was on his way to the city of Damascus to terrorize and apprehend Christians there, he had a personal encounter with the risen and glorified Christ. Uh, kind of a complete change of plans, just not the kind of thing you expect to happen in the course of a normal day of terrorism. Uh, he recognized Jesus to be, to be the Messiah, uh, the promised Savior, the anointed one. His life was transformed. He was called by Jesus himself to take the gospel beyond Judaism to the Gentile world, which he then proceeded to do with the same intensity, the same passion, the same fervor with which he had formerly persecuted and ravaged and harassed the church. This letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome is all about the gospel. 
the good news about Jesus Christ. You know, I shared in the opening message way back a few months ago that studies are revealing that decreasing numbers of Americans um, who profess to be Christians are able to articulate the gospel itself, the simplicity of the gospel message, or for that matter, the, the essentials of biblical Christianity. And that as a result, decreasing numbers of those who identify as Christians, who profess to be Christians, who would say, yes, I am a Christian, actually possess a biblical worldview, a a Christ-centered view of the world. So there's a great need in our time, uh, not just in the world at large, but in the church, uh, to revisit the gospel. Paul wanted the Romans to understand that the gospel, this good news, is about a person and not merely about a set of principles. And that person is Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people today that say, I would be a lot more accepting of Christianity if I didn't have to just accept Jesus Christ. If it wasn't so exclusive In the opening lines of the letter, Paul wrote that the gospel is the gospel of God. It came from God, God the Father, concerning his Son. The gospel of God concerning his Son. The the reformer John Calvin wrote that the whole gospel is contained in Christ. Therefore, to move even a step from Christ means to withdraw oneself from the gospel. Similarly, the Another reformer, Martin Luther, commenting on the opening verses of Romans 1, said, Here the door is thrown open wide for the understanding of Holy Scripture. That is, that everything, everything must be understood in relation to Christ. The gospel of God concerning his Son. In chapter 1, then, verses 16 to 17, Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this, by the way, Romans 1, verses 16 to 17, sets the central theme for the entire book of Romans. If there's an encapsulation of the message at at any one place in the letter, it's here in this first chapter in verses 16 to 17. In the second half of chapter 1, at verse 18, Paul says this. He says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. And the truth, Paul says, is this. The truth that he has in mind at this point is this, that God is, that God created and that God is to be 
worshipped. That God is, that God created, that God is to be worshipped. And that is a result of the suppression of that truth. Seems kind of contemporary, doesn't it? As, a, as, the suppre- as the result of the suppression of that truth, mankind separated from God has, by our own choice, been progressively and inexorably sliding into idolatry, which leads to sexual immorality, sexual deviancy, sexual perversion, but not just that, but every other form of rebellion against God as well. And, and as we insist on those things, God being the gentleman that he is, says to us, have it your way. Your will be done, O man. The righteousness of God, Paul says, is revealed in the gospel, the good news, and the gospel is shown to be the very best possible news for this reason, that the wrath of God is now, Paul says, at the present time, being revealed. So as we resume our study in Romans at chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is still speaking to mankind in general. And he employs a classic form of writing in which he carries on a conversation with an imaginary third party whom he identifies simply as, oh man, and allows the reader to listen in. But it's not long before the reader, that's you and me, recognizes himself or herself as being that imaginary third party. So this morning we're in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Would you stand with me and let's read this together. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, 
For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, this is a a challenging little passage. Um, Let me try to set the table for us here a little bit. In, in, In Romans 1 through 3, these first three chapters of the letter, Paul deals with three kinds of people. In Romans 1, he He's describing what we might simply label the godless. Those, those whom Paul describes in that chapter as suppressing the truth about God and then living their lives from that standpoint, the godless. In Romans 2, 1 through 13, the passage we're considering this morning, he speaks to what we might call the critical moralist. Or if you want to add another adjective in there, I I know I only gave you two lines in your notes, but if you want to add another adjective in there, you could put the educated, critical, moralist. From there to chapter 3, verse 20, he's addressing what I would just call the religionist. Um, We'll just use that as a shorthand term. You'll allow me that in two, chapter two, verse fourteen through three twenty, and particularly here the Jew who trusts in the mere fact of his or her Judaism for being in a right relationship with God. So in verses uh, in chapter two, verses one through thirteen, which we're considering this morning, Paul is warning this critical moralist. Critical moralist. Who are the critical moralists? Well, first of all, critical moralists are finger pointers. Okay? In chapter 1, having described mankind's downward descent into idolatry and immorality, sexual deviation, sexual perversion, and all of that, he reaches the climax in verses 28 to 32. And he writes this, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, that's cheery, isn't it? And you want to say, come on, Paul, tell us what you really think, right? And and the critical moralist, as they're reading this, The critical moralists are saying, Amen, Paul. Give it to them, brother. Speak the truth. God's wrath is coming for those immoral pagans. 
those guys. Not me, those guys. And the slogan of the critical moralist is this, if you don't have anything good to say about someone, you're my kind of person. In the church, critical moralists tend to populate what what I just kind of refer to as discernment ministries. They, they call themselves discerning. Rather than judgmental, they prefer the word discerning. And people in discernment ministries, you, you know any of these? They're, um, their self-appointed role is to find and expose and root out who and what they believe to be wrong in the church at large. Watchdog ministries over other ministries. And they're devoted to the task of keeping their eyes on other people, churches, ministries, leaders, particularly influential leaders, focusing the spotlight on them to make sure that they are towing the doctrinal line, the moral line. And so they have websites and talk shows and blogs. Boy, I I could really preach on this one right now. Here's here's what you'll experience. If if you really think about what they're writing, if you go to any of these websites, and I'm not going to name any names this morning, but but here's what they do. They'll they'll set up a a kind of a straw man argument. They'll, They'll create this scenario. And then they'll take a quote from their, their favorite target and they'll take, take it out of the context in which it was written and set it over into this other context and all of a sudden they sound like the devil. They sound evil. They sound so wrong. And if you don't know what you're reading and if you don't see that that's happening, you can, you can just be sucked in and go, yeah, man, that, that guy or that, that gal or that ministry, they, they are way, way off. And those people in those ministries will say, stick with us. We'll show you who's biblical and who's not. And they're always looking at other people's issues to the extent that they are blind to their own. And so the next point is this, that critical moralists are blind to their own issues. In verse 1 of Romans 2, Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, the self-appointed judge, practice the very same things. Your heart is no different than theirs. Your heart separated from God, is just as sinful, just as depraved, just as full of all that nastiness as theirs. And that first verse there in chapter 2 comes like a bucket of cold water to the critical moralist. It's, a, it's an absolute masterstroke on Paul's part because Paul turns to those who have been sitting and listening to Paul's expose of pagan lifestyles and feeling pleased that they are not like those people The late John Stott, one of my theological heroes, said this about that. He said, we work ourselves up into a state of self-righteousness, self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people 
Well, the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. Can you relate to that? It's ironic, isn't it, that that we find it easy to pass judgment on someone for attitudes and actions that we ourselves know we fundamentally share. And you and I can make all kinds of excuses for our own sins. We were tired or we were provoked or it was a lesser evil. You just don't understand. If you understood my background, you would understand. While we are still quick to notice and to condemn it in others. We're kind of like the scribes and Pharisees in in John 8 who brought to Jesus a woman who had been caught in an act of adultery. And and if you really kind of think about that story, this, this woman that they dragged before Jesus may not have been wearing much. And they meant to stone her to death And they meant to capture Jesus in some error, doctrinally. But Jesus said, having squatted down and drawing something in the sand, we don't know what. Maybe he was writing the names of their mistresses in the sand. And he said to them, Those immortal words, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And Matthew tells us there that one by one they all hung their heads and made their way. And it wasn't long before Jesus and the woman were there alone with the stones that were left behind that had been in the hands of the scribes and Pharisees. Or we can be like the judgmental people that Jesus addressed in Matthew 7 who thought they were qualified to remove a small splinter from the eyes of others when they themselves had a glue lamb beam sticking out of their own. To them, Jesus said, remove the log from your own eye. And then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the splinter from your brother's eye. And there's a reason that James, the brother of Jesus, warned not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. See, in the jeopardy of people like me, pastors and preachers and teachers is that when, when we're addressing the issues of sin in the lives of others, there's, there's a necessity to also address those same things in our own lives. Critical moralists condemn themselves as they are condemning others. Verses 2 and 3, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice the, such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You think the judgment of God only falls on other people? 
When I was growing up, you know, any time someone tried to address an issue of sin in the church in which I grew up, inevitably the verse came forward which says, and some of you know what I'm about to say, judge not lest ye yourselves be judged. So is there a difference, in fact, between discernment and judging? I think there is, because Paul just spent the first chapter of Romans talking about the sins of others. Sin happens. It's real. And there is a way of pointing it out that is right, that is discerning, that is, in fact, loving and merciful and compassionate. There's nothing wrong with being discerning. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we try to teach our kids to do, is it not? To be discerning. To understand the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil. But there's everything wrong with pointing the finger in a morally superior, self-deceptive kind of way. Critical moralists, Paul said, presume on God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's three words there that are worth taking a look at before we move on from here. So I want to pause and observe them with you. And the words are kindness, forbearance, and patience. I don't know how they're translated in your Bibles. Uh, Sometimes forbearance is translated tolerance. But kindness, that word means, well, it means kindness. And it speaks to personal goodness and generosity and patience, the kinds of things that that you think of when you think of a kind person. It's all wrapped up in that word. But the second word, forbearance, the Greek word there is anoche. It doesn't you don't need to know that. But here's what you do need to know. It means to hold back judgment, to delay punishment. And it was sometimes used in the ancient world to designate a truce, a cessation of hostilities among warring parties. 2 Peter 2.9 says this, God doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So when we think about the tolerance of God, his tolerance will not last forever. It speaks to a temporary cessation, a temporary withholding of judgment. And then that third word that's translated patience, macrothumia, sometimes was used to describe a powerful ruler who who voluntarily withheld judgment, or withheld vengeance rather, on an enemy or withheld punishment for a criminal. And the presumption to which Paul is alluding here 
is the presumption, I think, that God is not only gracious and merciful, but he's soft. That, that he's really not a righteous judge. That he kind of is offended by sin, but maybe kind of will just let it go. Offended by disobedience, but will kind of let it go. His judgment hasn't fallen yet, probably never will. Because I'm okay. If you really knew me, I'm a pretty good guy. And on balance, I'm not as bad as that guy that lives next door to me. And Paul says that presumption is the product of a hard and impenitent heart. By the way, you know, when we talk about these three kinds of people, I've been all three of them. I've been in all three of those places. Some of you might say the same. So the presumption is the product of a hard heart and and in their presumption, in their refusal to repent of patterns of habitual sin, Paul says they're storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath. Romans 1, he says the, day, the, the wrath of God is being revealed. It's revealed in this that, that God allows us to go our own way and, and experience the natural consequence of that. But that's not the end of the story. There is a day of wrath coming. There is a day of judgment that will come that the Bible talks about from, from almost the beginning to the end. The day of judgment at, at the end of time, the end of history, when God says, mm, time out, time's up, clocks run out. And Paul says that God will give to each one according to what he has done. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Right about now you're going, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is Paul now teaching that, that we can earn or merit our salvation by our works? I mean, is, is he doing an about face here? Is he, is he talking about faith and grace and all of that and now turning around and saying, no, it's really a matter of works. Is that what Paul is saying here? Well, before jumping to that conclusion, uh, let's give Paul a little space here. Let's give him a little credit for intelligence. We just saw that Paul in chapter 1, verse 17, said that the gospel reveals a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So that's over there in chapter 1. We're in chapter 2 right now. Over there in chapter 1, he says it's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, from faith for faith. And in chapter 3, which will be in sometime, verse 24, Paul says that we are justified by God's grace. Not as something we earned, but as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. 
in chapter 3, verse 28, he will state very clearly, for we hold that no one is justified, or I'm sorry, we, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now Paul borrowed the statement in verse 6 from Psalm 62, verse 12. And there's a reason. What have the people in this psalm done for which they will be repaid? Well, we won't take the time to read that entire psalm, but but if, if we did, we'd find the answer to be illuminating because David, the writer of Psalm 62, is contrasting two groups of people. There are, on the one hand, those who plot against God's chosen king, plot to overthrow him, who lie, who say one thing with their lips and do the opposite in their hearts, verse 4 of of Psalm 62. And there's a strong resemblance to the people Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The other group in Psalm 62 finds rest and hope in God alone. They say, my salvation and honor come from God alone. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. And what they have done is they've found salvation from God and made him the center of their lives. And it's clearly this heart, this attitude, that God will reward as he renders to each person according to what he or she has done. So what is Paul saying here? Back to Romans chapter 2. I think he's saying that works matter, not as the basis of our salvation, but as the evidence that someone possesses the faith that leads to life. In Psalm 62, what matters fundamentally is a person's relationship to God as their refuge, as their rock, their salvation. And as verses 9 to 10 of Psalm 62 suggests, this will be seen in how they perceive their lives and how they conduct themselves. We are, listen now, we are revealed by our works, not redeemed by them. We are revealed by our works, not redeemed by them. Another way of expressing this is to say that works are the fruit and not the root of our salvation. Our works are the outward manifestation of the, of the redemptive, transforming work of Christ in us. The, the apples on an apple tree prove life. They don't provide it. The apples are the evidence that there is life in the tree, that, but the roots are what draw up the nourishment to keep it that way. Imagine then, I'm, and if I'd known these trees were going to be here, I'd, I'd have hung some plastic fruit on them. Because imagine a, a tree that from a distance looks for all the world like an apple tree. But as you get closer, you realize that it's, it's not an apple tree at all, but some other kind of tree. And yet all over the tree, there seems to be apples growing. 
And so you examine further and you discover to your disappointment that, that the fruit hanging from that tree is in fact only artificial. Why is that? Because only an apple tree produces apples. If you don't remember anything else I say today, remember this. The sap makes the difference. The sap makes the difference. See, Christ alone, alone, Christ alone provides new life to anyone who believes. Amen? We affirm that. And it's a changed life of faith and obedience and obedience that gives the authenticating evidence that we have real faith. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. doesn't mean that you're going to get straight A's in obedience. You won't. But there will be transformation. Let me be very clear. Salvation is God's gift by his grace alone, through faith in his son alone, with nothing else added. It's not Christ plus. It's Christ alone. But for those who make the claim to be in Christ, to have trusted in him, to to be in, have been adopted into his family. If the works of our hands are not being transformed, it's right for us to ask whether our faith is real. It's right for us to examine ourselves. There are areas in my own life right now that I'm, I'm struggling with obedience. I, I don't want to obey. Some things God's put in front of me. And I've failed the test a few times here. And when there's a, a pattern that we observe forming in our lives of resistance to the Spirit of God, we need to examine what's really going on in our own lives. Pray for me. I'll pray for you. Paul wrote in Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved. Past tense, fact, you have been saved through faith. Hear that? By grace, through faith, you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith, for works. There is a life that God is calling you to live, calling me to live, that is the outflow of our salvation. 
It is the fruit of what God has done internally. I love Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It's encouraging to me. Paul said, it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I remember a paraphrase of that I read. I don't remember which paraphrase it was, but it stuck in my mind. It says, it's God who is at work in you, first giving you the desire to do what he wants, and then giving you the power to do it. I love that. The desire to do what pleases him and the power to do it are all from God. And just as David did in Psalm 62, Paul in verses 7 to 10 divides humanity into two groups of people and he points to two sets of indicators of whether or not a heart is right with God. He says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be, will be wrath and fury. Not might be, will be. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And that phrase, the Jew first and also the Greek, is one of Paul's favorite phrases. Because he understands that in God's economy, there is a priority given to the Jews. They were the first to receive the law and the promises. And the Greeks were added in. So two kinds of people, those, first of all, who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. And secondly, those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And then he says two very different outcomes. He points to one is wrath and fury, tribulation and distress, And then secondly, eternal life and glory and honor and peace. See, here's the reality. The moral and the immoral are equally in need of the gospel. The moral and the immoral are equally in need of the gospel. You've probably heard me say this because it's something I think about a lot. One of my quirky thoughts. But every now and then you'll hear, you'll hear somebody say, oh, I wish so-and-so would come to faith in Christ. They would make such a good Christian. You ever heard anybody say that? That person would make such a good Christian. Why? Because they're moral people. They're nice people. And let's face it, there are a lot of pagans who are much nicer people than you are. Right? I mean, you look at some lives and you go, man, I wish I was like that. That's a cool person. Someday, if I grow up, I want to be like that person. They would make such a great Christian. But see, the moral may persuade themselves that mere morality is what God requires. Why do I need Jesus? I'm a good person. Everybody says I'm a good person. I live a good life. 
and the immoral already know that they haven't met the standard. Both are in need of the gospel. Both are in need of repentance. In Matthew 25, I don't know if you remember the story. It's the story of judgment, the sheep and the goats. And, and you know, the master says, put the goats over here, the sheep over here. And he says, you know, to some he says, depart from me. You know, I was sick and I was in prison and I was naked and you did nothing. And then to the righteous, he says, I was sick and you came to me. I was an orphan and you cared for me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. And there, there's kind of a an absence of self-consciousness of the righteous because they say, Lord, when did that happen? When did that happen? He said, anytime you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. There's a life that you were living, but it's descriptive. You seek what you seek because of an inner compulsion, whether it's by the Spirit of God or your own pride and indulgence. Salvation is not by works, but listen, final judgment will be. What does that mean? That means if you've trusted in Christ, you're going to heaven. But there will be a judgment at the end for all of us on which rewards will be based. All will be judged, Paul says, and all fairly, for God shows no partiality. And he says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Works are the fruit, not the root. The sap makes the difference. And what Paul is saying in that last phrase, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. He's saying, if you choose to be judged on the basis of your ability to keep the law, Knock yourself out. Knock yourself out. I had a math teacher in middle school who who used a phrase I've never forgotten. I've used it often. It's this. Consistency is a steep hill. And Paul said in another place, if if you're depending on your ability to keep the law for your self-righteousness, If you keep the whole law but fail in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. So good luck with that. By works of the law, no one will be justified. But out of that salvation ought to be coming a life of obedience. Courageous obedience, risky obedience, faithful, consistent obedience. And that's the direction that God is taking each of us who are in Christ. It's why why sin in our life ought to trouble us so much. Because God is taking us a different direction. The sap makes the difference. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time in your word. Thank you for this amazing letter of Paul to the Romans. Lord, would you apply this to our hearts and lives, we pray, that we would not only hear it, but do it, that we would we would understand it. And Lord, thank you for your great grace toward us in Christ that, 
that uh, salvation is a, a gift from you, not something we ever could earn or merit, not something we have to strive to achieve, but only to receive it and then to live our lives in, in response. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.